1: Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Justin Onokwusi is head of retail multi-asset funds at Legal and General Investment Management. The Legal and General Group is one of the world's biggest and most successful insurers and asset managers with over £1 trillion in assets. Belgium's multi-asset team managed more than £63 billion, with Justin playing a leading role in the strategic allocation of those funds. Having started out as an analyst with Aon Hewitt in 2003, Justin next worked at Merrill Lynch during the now seminal period between 2007 and eight before taking up a role as multi-asset fund manager at Aviva in 2010. And since 2013, Justin has been with Elgin, now heading up the firm's extremely successful retail multi-asset business. I talked to Justin about asset allocation, leveraging his cross-asset expertise to understand where investors should be weighting their portfolios in 2021 and beyond. We discuss his investment philosophy and how Elgin's use of their extensive index offering gives them one of the most successful low-cost fund ranges on the market enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Great to have you on the show. Um, So firstly, to deal with the important business, uh, I think I saw on Twitter you're a big uh, United fan. So I imagine you enjoyed the game on Sunday.
0: Oh yes, I definitely did. Um, It's (laughs) not, not every day that you get to beat your main rivals, particularly the way they've been playing over the last few years, so I was absolutely delighted.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Pretty unexpected uh, from, from a neutral's point of view. I'm an Arsenal fan, and the less said about that, the better, but um, I can't say I was expecting a Man United win there, so so must have must been a great result.
0: Yeah, ollie has got this thing, isn't it, his knack of when we have a, a run of bad results, then he pulls out a couple of good results and we think we're on cloud nine again and it all goes, all goes wrong again. So, <laughs> um, No, there's definitely inconsistency in, in the team, but no, the talent is definitely there. So actually, I'm hoping next season we can actually challenge.
1: Yeah, yeah, good. Um, well, I say good. I mean, I'm hoping you don't challenge. But, <laughs> but for, for your sake, uh, hopefully they're doing well next season. Um, All right, then. uh, Well, important stuff out the way then. uh, And we'll move on to the the main body of the interview. So I wanted to start by speaking about uh, ETFs and sort of low fee investment vehicles versus managed mutual funds. Um, And then then we'll actually take a step back and and cover a bit of your background and kind of what you do day to day. Um, But with the rise of passives and low and even no fee investment vehicles, are you optimistic that investors will continue to turn to managed multi-asset mutual funds?
0: I think they will. I think that what you're seeing in the managed multi-asset fund space is that more and more managers are actually investing in index funds anyway. So in managed multi-asset fund space, you're seeing costs uh, start to come down there. It was only only 10, 15 years ago, you are talking about full-blown multi-manager strategies where essentially most multi-asset fund managers are picking managers from across the you know across the board across the world but now uh, the, the the managers that are doing very well including ourselves um use predominantly index funds in their in their portfolios and that brings down the overall costs but still means you can be active in terms of asset allocation which is the key driver of risk and therefore returning a multi-asset portfolio anyway
1: Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So you you mentioned sort of using indexes within the funds to bring down the cost. Is there anything else that you're doing to make sure your funds are priced competitively?
0: It's something that I am always really concerned about. So if I think about the four main pillars of our our strategy, you know, it's diversification, active asset allocation, Mm -hmm. suitability and cost effectiveness. And that is not only in the individual building blocks that we use in order to get access to different asset classes, but it's also in things like, you know, thinking about how to transact on the portfolios. You know, when cash flows come into the portfolios, do you buy everything across the board? Do you buy one single asset class? When you want to sell down your more expensive asset classes, such as direct property, for example, and um, do you do that all in one go? Do you phase it over time? Do you use cash flows to... Um, to reduce the asset allocation. So costs and fees are really important. They're the only thing you are guaranteed in from management that costs will tracked from returns year after year after year. So it's so important to manage them no matter what type of strategy you are. Mm,
1: Absolutely. Okay, and actually there's a few points I want to dig into there, particularly around those four key pillars that you mentioned. I've I've highlighted two of them uh, further down in the interview. But before we do that, um, I'm just conscious that not everyone listening in will will know you uh, personally. They'll they'll know El Jim, I'm sure, but they they won't know you. So let's dig into your background and what you do on a day to day basis. Mm. Um. So, uh, with with a quick sort of look at uh, on LinkedIn and a bit of a research before the call. Uh, after four years as an analyst at Aon Hewitt, you moved to Merrill Lynch uh, during 2007. So I, I couldn't sort of move us on without uh, realizing that obviously it's a pretty interesting time to join the firm. So firstly, what was it like working just generally in the investment industry during that period?
0: I think it's pretty scary, actually. I mean, when I first joined Merrill Lynch in 2007, Mm. um, that was April 2007, and it was, you know, everything was pretty positive, um, profitability was pretty strong, uh, working with lots and lots of smart people, um, and then all of a sudden, yeah, Mm. it just went horribly wrong, and I was working in the wealth management business, so no- nothing to do with the investment bank. Uh, and then, you know, quarter after quarter, mm. we're just seeing significant write downs, and these are these are eye-watering numbers in terms of billions and billions of dollars of write downs. And and you know, from a for somebody mm. who'd been in the industry for what three and a half, four years, this was just you know, I'd never seen numbers like this before. <laughs> I didn't even think numbers like that existed, and and um, so it was right. it was frightening I, I, the, the biggest <laughs> thing that really frightened me was or, or the biggest thing I learned from it was that markets can make even the most smartest people humble because there's lots of smart people within Merrill Lynch. there are lots of smart mm-hmm. people that I work with, but ultimately uh, when you write down your balance sheet to zero, then some of those smart people have to have to leave. Uh, and that was the that was the most frightening thing um you know happy to have kept my job uh, over that period where lots of people didn't um but you know ultimately I learned that markets can make even the smartest people humble
1: yeah yeah absolutely um and as you say there i mean you kept your job you were working sort of with the wealth management division uh, and you were there i think till two thousand and ten um mm-hmm. where in June you joined Aviva as a multi asset fund manager, is that right
0: yeah, that's correct. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, is is that the first time you were you were leading on the management of a fund?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So, at Merrill's, uh, what I was actually doing, I was sat in the CIO team, and I was giving advice to the portfolio managers on their asset allocation. So, in a way, mm. uh, I was part of a team that was managing the asset allocation. Anyway. Um, however, I was focused on fund selection rather than the asset allocation. I was yeah. not a team managing the asset allocation. So so yes, literally, it was the first time I was managing a multi-asset fund. Uh, but I would say the skill set that I had, on learned at Merrill's, was actually really important and helped me to do that when I got to Avina.
1: Yeah, okay. So I see what you mean. The previous role set you up actually quite nicely to mm. to lead on the management uh over at Aviva. Um okay, cool. And then um I'm I'm interested to know kind of how you directed your career into the multi-asset space. So was that the first time you were working sort of exclusively within a multi-asset team?
0: Yeah, so it's a good question. So I actually think I I always had an interest in asset allocation. And that from even when I was at Aon, I was giving advice to pension schemes and asset allocation. When I moved to Merrill's, effectively, I was part of its team giving asset allocation advice to the discretionary fund managers. So asset allocation was always a, a part of, of, of what I did and something I was I was really interested in. So, but yes, it was a, a, it was a natural extension, I suppose, uh, to be to go from fund research to fund manager. So you're going from essentially one side of the table to the other side of the table. Um, but I, in a way, I was very lucky. And I always look back in my career and think that just how privileged I have been. And I was really privileged to have worked with uh, the head of portfolio construction at Merrill Lynch because it was him mm-hmm. that you know went to Aviva to set up the multi-asset fund team. And he asked me to come and join him at Aviva Investors to help him do that. One of the things that I always pass on to uh, my mentees wow. is that it's really important, really important that you, um, it's really important that you you work hard and, and you get noticed for your work because ultimately, ultimately sponsors come in all shapes and sizes. I would have never have thought, um, you know, two years before he left to go and join Aviva that um, I would be working underneath that, that head of portfolio construction. But because of the work I did at Merrill's that stood out to him, you know, he called me. I was the first person he called when he went, when he went to Aviva.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, that's really interesting and actually really useful advice uh, for any of us that uh, are that, uh, like myself. I mean, particularly a bit further back in my career. Um, so, so that's useful. So um, I think it was then in August 2013, you joined Elgin. But did, did you go in as head of retail multi-asset or, or, or did you go in, in another position and, and kind of progress to that position?
0: Yeah, so I went as a fund manager. The team's a lot smaller then. Yeah. So, so it would have been a bit strange for me to be the head of retail multi-asset. But um, you know, since 2013, we've grown the business, the retail multi-asset business to be from effectively zero to about 10 billion pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so so then naturally the teams got bigger, and as the teams got bigger, we've had to create hubs, and these hubs effectively, the people who are at the top of those hubs as fund managers. Uh, now have head of roles. So we have got head of strategic a- asset allocation, head of dynamic strategies, and I'm head of retail multi-asset, which essentially means um, the retail multi-asset funds as a whole typically uh, will um, sit under under my leadership.
1: Right, got it. Okay. And uh, you mentioned uh, sort of 10, 10 billion there. Is that as part of the 57 billion in multi-asset funds that Elgin have under... Under under management, I think I read that number on your website.
0: Yeah, that's correct. So I sit in a wider team that manages around fifty-seven. I think so, I think it might be north of sixty billion pounds actually now in multi-asset cool. fund money. It's headed by Emil van den Heligberg, and we're split into economists, strategists, and fund managers. I sit in that, that fund management team. And I focus on retail investments.
1: Okay, interesting. So, um, as as we discussed before the call, there's there's a lot of retail investors listening in, people that are sort of external and outside of the investment management industry. So, if we can give them a sense of what a typical day looks like for you, mm. and I realise that they're going to they're going to be pretty diverse and change all the time, mm. but can you give us an idea or a sense of what a typical day looks like?
0: Yeah, I can yeah. So, um, if I think about my day today, uh, so I Got up reasonably early. Got up at half five. Um, did a little bit of reading. Um, I had Pilates at six a.m. So you know, one of the wow. things in, in lockdown is I've been, I've been trying to do as much exercise as I can. Uh, and I've got a virtual mm-hmm. a virtual trainer now who helps me on my Pilates, particularly when you're sitting down so much, you need help with your posture. I then got my kids ready at seven a.m. Uh, got them ready for school and, and nursery. Uh, then at seven thirty, I started to prepare for a a journalist meeting that I had with Reuters. Um, so just reading up on markets, what happened yesterday, which I do anyway, right? So, but you're reading up on markets, mm. what happened yesterday, what what, what are the key the key points, the ECB for example uh, met today. So I, I read I read a lot about you know what what we think of the ECB, we're going to do. Then we had our morning meeting uh, where we go around a the economists and strategists understand uh, what, um, again, what they think has happened um, or, or what they think has happened yesterday and what they think is going to happen going forward. Did the Reuters meeting, which went, which went reasonably well. Um, today, I actually had a, a client meeting as well, so with the financial advisor. So um, mm-hmm. I, I spoke to them about how the funds are doing. I also, before 12 o'clock, uh, we often get cash flows in. Uh, that we need to invest and 12 o'clock is essentially the, the, the main cutoff point for the funds that I manage. So we try and make sure we allocate all the cash flows before 12 o'clock, liaising with the implementation team. I try to keep um between you know nine and 12 reasonably free so I can focus on those cash flows and focus on markets. Mm. And then in the afternoon um I liaise with um I manage four people So I sat down with one of the people there, did my one-to-one with them, went through their development and and how they're getting on. Um, I also researched infrastructure. So I did a bit of infrastructure research this afternoon as well. Um, And then finally, I do um, some mentoring. So I did a a half an hour of mentoring with um, somebody within LGM. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty um, diverse. And uh, diverse. in between all those gaps, which doesn't seem to be any gaps, actually, but in between those gaps, <laughs> uh, you know, always looking at markets, always reading the news, always trying to anticipate what the impacts of different asset classes has been, uh, different asset class moves has been on the portfolios overall, and really thinking about overall risk.
1: Yeah, okay, interesting. On On that infrastructure point, is that because... You, you know, you want to understand that, that sector more, or like, what? Well, why are you specifically looking at infrastructure?
0: Yeah. So um, typically, the, the way our team works is we've got economists, strategists, and called managers. Economists effectively, you know, look at things like growth, inflation, interest rates. The button is then passed on to strategists, who then say, how do those mm-hmm. economic variables impact different asset classes? So this is equities or shares, bonds, currencies. And cash, you know, what's the impact of the, the global economy going to be on those, on those, on those main mainly four asset classes? The baton is then passed on to fund managers who then try and package it together into an overall portfolio that makes sense for clients. So typically mm. fund managers don't do, or, or in our team, they don't do a lot of a lot of research. But you know, mm. the aim is that every fund manager will do at least some research of some area. And the area that that Mm -hmm. has fallen to me, uh, as well as another fund manager, actually, we do it together, is infrastructure. So, you know, that's why I I continue to look at infrastructure, continue to monitor infrastructure um, to to really help out the strategists in terms of their research. Yeah. Okay.
1: And you're looking at that from a sort of top-down sector level view are you coming at it from a bottom-up sort of stock picking view like how does that work
0: yeah so typically it is from a, a top-down perspective so the main areas mm-hmm. airports railways toll roads and um, pipelines uh, energy pipelines and utilities so we'll look at all of those areas and really try and assess are they correctly valued you know what's the sentiment in those areas what's the momentum in those areas what's the impacts of rate of interest rates what's the impact of equity movements on those areas and we try and formulate all of that into an overall view of infrastructure as a whole
1: okay cool yeah
0: got it all
1: right well and um, i want to ask you about one more sort of aspect of mm. your role and what you do day to day before we move on to current markets so you co-chair the legal and general inclusion team mm-hmm. chair the investment diversity working group uh, as well as being on the diversity and inclusion team at your parent company legal in general mm. so can you just talk to us about kind of the work that you do as part mm. of these organizations so what, what what does all of that mean
0: yeah so i i i was thinking about this the other day a, a lot uh, within the investment field uh, i want to be i want elgin to be a disruptor <laughs> i want elgin to be um really create real change and improve client outcomes in investment space. And actually that extrapolates outside of investment as well, that mm-hmm. I want to ensure I want to work for a business and work for an industry that is representative of wider society. Um, and that is something that I'm really passionate about you know, being a black man um, who was brought up in not the most affluent area in Manchester, single-parent household. I've seen Mm. just how hard it is for certain people to get into an industry like uh, like, that we work in. So Mm. what I want to try and do is to create a level playing field for all so that we can truly say uh, we're an inclusive industry. But actually, even further than that, we can truly say we're in cl- an inclusive country. Because you know, societal yeah. change goes beyond the asset management industry, goes beyond LG. Actually, it's a it's a societal problem. So I, I do think that uh, one thing I'm really passionate about is creating that true representation and an equal playing field for all.
1: Mm, no, absolutely. Mm. I mean, you've worked in in the city. Obviously, we're all sort of working from home at the moment, as I imagine you are as well. But you've worked mm. in the city in inverted commas for mm. for over fifteen years. Must be well mm. since sort of two thousand and three, I suppose, when you joined Aon Hewitt. So, where
0: where are we on
1: that journey in terms of getting to a properly inclusive industry?
0: I, I think there's a long way to go. Uh, I think we made massive strides in the last few years. Uh, the diversity project is, I think, is has done a, done a great job in ensuring that companies look at this as a, an industry level rather than in silos, looking at their individual business. I think mean, that's the way to create societal change, is for the whole of society to look at it. So to look at it at an industry level is a lot, obviously a lot more powerful than looking at it at company level. But you know, you look at the report from New Financial in. 2017, which said there were 12 black fund managers in the whole of the city, that are thousands. I mean that that is is a pretty sickening statistic. You look at the the lack of women fund managers in the asset manager industry. You look at the gender pay gap, uh, which has actually got wider over the last few years in the asset manager industry, and it, you know it says that we've still got a lot of work to do. On the positives, you know we have seen. We definitely have seen since this 2017 greater representation of um, ethnic minorities of women in the industry, but clearly um, we started from a very low base, so there's still a lot more work to do. Which, going back to your last question, you know that's why I co-chair the JIT, which is the legal and general inclusion team. It's why I try and drive greater diversity inclusion both within LGIM but also within the industry as a whole, being part of the diversity projects and a co-founder of a movement called Talk About Black.
1: Mm. Okay. Well, actually, that that Talk About uh, Black um, movement, I saw that on your Twitter account, I think it was. Um, If there's anything there, because it's such a sort of important, Mm. relevant topic for everyone listening, and actually, to be honest, we could dedicate a whole entire episode and more to that conversation. Uh, but we've got a lot more questions to get through so I, I want to move us on to those but actually just to talk about that movement there the one that I saw on your Twitter feed is there any sort of information that our readers can go and sort of find out more stuff that we won't get to in today's conversation?
0: Yeah I, I just followed the handle on Twitter it's just hashtag okay. talk about black and and on LinkedIn and and the idea is just that we're trying to create greater representation across the corporate sphere by simply creating a platform to talk about ethnicity and to talk about race, which, you know, before 2020 simply wasn't really spoken about at all. Mm.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, we'll, we'll put that uh, just in the episode description just so people, people remember that. Okay, great. Well let's move on to current markets then. You said you've talked to Reuters a little bit about this today, so I hope we won't go over too much sort of common ground. Um, On Opto we tend to focus or we do exclusively focus on stock markets. I haven't limited our conversation to just that but there there, there will be sort of a bit of a a tilt towards equities uh, in in the next few questions. Uh, They performed extremely well last year. I mean if you look at US equities for example uh, they massively outperformed a lot of asset classes aside from your sort of precious metals like gold and silver and things like that. To what extent do you see that continuing in 2021 now that an end to sort of pandemic-induced
0: lockdowns is is in sight. If you think about what really drives equities as a whole, I think there's really three things. The economic cycle, valuations, and systemic Mm -hmm. risks. So if you think about the economic cycle, we are in the early cycle phase, right? We are at the stage where we're coming out of recession and typically, that's the best time to invest in equities, right? That's the best time. Early cycle is the best time to invest in equities. So that's a big positive. In addition to that, you've got a huge amount of fiscal injections, so so tax cuts and stimulus checks coming through the uh, coming through the post for for people. So so people have got people are going to have additional income. And then on top of that, then you've got central banks keeping interest rates or trying to keep interest rates as low as possible. So Yeah, fiscal policy, um, so stimulative fiscal policy, central banks being accommodative, and the fact we're early cycle is all a huge positive for equity markets. Then you look at valuations what is the price of equities? What is the price of shares? And actually, you know, there are parts of the market that do look expensive. No doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, But then you look at, as a multi asset investor, I've Mm -hmm. got to invest somewhere, right? You look at equities relative to bonds and equities actually look reasonably okay relative to the expensive bonds, right? Mm. So then that tilts you towards equities again. Then you look at systemic risks and clearly we've got the pandemic, Mm. uh, but it does look like, you know, with the vaccine rollout, we're seeing a lot more positive news that economies are going to reopen. which is a huge, huge positive. The one underpriced risk in the market, I think is the China-US relationship. I do think that, a lot of investors think that, given we've got a new administration in the US, we're going to see uh, a more um, a more conducive relationship with China. Uh, however, you know it's clear, at least from the first few days, first few months, few weeks of Biden's administration, mm-hmm. that you're going to see a hard line to China. Also, so I do think that that market risk is is under underpriced. We did see in 2018, so. 2018 2018 just what impact that china u.s relationship can have on markets so you know that is the one risk that i'm worried about but overall positive from an economic perspective reasonably positive evaluations especially when you look relative to bonds and then from a systemic risk perspective okay there's one risk that's underpriced but actually there's not that many risks that we see on the horizon that could really derail the equity markets so therefore And we're positive. We're positive on equities overall. The last point you mentioned on U.S. equities, I do think this is really important. If you are an index investor in U.S. equities, your U.S. equity position is a lot more risky than it was five, 10 years ago. Why? Because the level of stock concentration in that index is a lot higher. What do I mean by that? Now you have five stocks making up over twenty yeah. percent of the S and P five hundred, which is five hundred stocks. So you think you're diversifying over five hundred stocks, but actually you're getting exposure to five stocks making twenty percent of that index. So mm-hmm. and they've grown over time. It's, it's those it's the tech stocks, right? The tech stocks that have done so well. So Facebook, Google, Netflix, Amazon, Alphabet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're driving the overall risk now of us equities so by definition your us equity your us share position your us equity position is going to be more risky than it was five ten years ago so it's so important i think to be global to spread your risk over lots of different regions even if you're positive on technology because you know even if you're positive on technology what you don't want to do is hold all your assets in so few names
1: mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting because, I mean, a lot of people listening and will be exposed to sort of, uh, yeah, your, your tops are US indices, um, the S&P 500, for example. And therefore, they're top heavy and have been looking top heavy for, for, for a while now. Um, I mean, it feels as if the market's conducive to actually make them kind of become increasingly more top heavy, if if that's even possible. I mean, you mentioned there that sort of there's, there's five names that are leading the way. I mean, I don't see that slowing down. What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, so I just think that investors are or have a concentration conundrum. Mm. You know, we know that over time, over the medium term, diversification is the only free lunch you get in investing. Spreading your risk over Mm. different asset classes will smooth out your returns over time. If something is more risky today than it was five, 10 years ago, by definition, if your risk appetite hasn't changed, you should be holding less. Uh, So even if you like tech, What we do within our portfolios, for example, we we actually like tech, right? We like technology, uh, but we're not willing to hold such a concentrated Mm -hmm. position. So we reduce our overall technology exposure in those big names and buy a diversified basket of tech names, which is less concentrated. So if you ask me over the next five, 10 years, do I think those five names will outperform a basket of Diversified stocks, I'd say I don't know. But what I do know, or or what I can say with some confidence, sorry, is that Mm. that basket will have a lower level of risk than those five stocks. I think that is that's the most important thing. This isn't a return argument, this is a risk argument. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get
1: your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions, along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, OK, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about the, the outperformance of equity there and kind of if we do, I guess, return to the return argument and have that conversation, I mean... We saw, I mean, if we use your, your yeah. uh, comparison between stocks and bonds, so the S&P 500 climbed 16.26% last year yeah. versus the top sort of bond uh, asset class, US corporate bonds uh, returning 9.7%. So obviously there's a stark difference there. So what as a multi-asset yeah. fund manager do you do when one asset class is significantly or so significantly outperforming the other?
0: So again, I think you've got to look at it in terms of the amount of risk you're taking. So there was a point, for example, at the end of March in 2020, where corporate bonds looked really attractive. So, you know, spreads, um, the, the level of corporate bonds sold off so much, it sold off to the same level that you saw in the global financial crisis in 2008. You know, this is A once in a lifetime opportunity, actually twice in a lifetime, because it's happened. It's happened uh, within within um, within fifteen years of each other. Um, So you know that was the time Mm -hmm. to really load up on corporate bonds and on high yield bonds, and that's exactly Mm -hmm. what uh, what we did. Then credit spreads, then corporate bonds got really you know really expensive, right? They 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 performed really well. And the spread mm. you were getting on corporate bonds versus cash, the yield you were getting on corporate bonds versus cash, fell to, again, you know, pretty low mm. levels. So that was a time there to direct money out of credit and into equities. So uh, equities, you know, clearly w- will perform better in an up market, yeah. and that's what you saw from the twenty third, uh, the twenty third of March, twenty twenty. But I'm telling you, on the nineteenth of February to the twenty third of March equities were down about 40, 30, 40%, 30-40% and corporate bonds weren't down that much. So, um, you know, I do think taking into account the overall risk of the asset classes is really important. And that's really my job to try and manage and manage dynamically between those asset classes to get the best return for clients over time with the least volatile performance.
1: Yeah, okay, absolutely. I mean, and, and key to all of this, if we, if we turn our minds to interest rates, I mean, that that's sort of central to the conversation we're having. And in equities, I suppose, well, people are starting to talk about reflation. They're starting to talk about actually a rotation into value stocks away from the sort of growth phase that we've had over the last few years. What's, what's your take on that?
0: So uh, I think that if we get true reopening of our economies, then you will get some bounce back from some of these value stocks. I'm thinking stocks mm-hmm. like energy, which you've already seen rally, banks, which, which, um, which you've already seen starts to rally. Yeah. I think you will get um, a bounce back from traditional value. The question is, how long will it last? Um, and the answer is, you know, we haven't really seen, if you look back in history, we haven't really seen this dynamic before uh, where you've essentially had, checks given out to people in the post and mm. what they've done with those checks is save them right so at the moment you've got the largest um, savings rate that I ever remember in my lifetime anyway you know almost 10% of GDP is in savings and mm. um, so you know there's a lot of pent-up demand that we think in the next quarter the next two quarters is going to be spent as the economies. As economy, and it's the US, the US data that I was referring to, as economies start to reopen. And that will have a massive impact on, uh, I think, growth. And I think you'll see pretty much, uh, you should see a, a growth boom, actually. The big question is, what impact does that have on inflation? Yeah. And I think we've got to be humble here and say, we actually don't know. We don't know because mm-hmm. the market has been wrong on inflation since 2013, right, or, or even before. I was looking at data just um, mm-hmm. the other day since 2013, the market has underestimated inflation by a level of 8%. So, you know, they've been widely, widely incorrect in terms of their assumption of where inflation is going to be. So I think we've got to be humble, uh, and we've got to say that actually, unless we've changed inflation regime, which we don't know uh, until after the event, but unless we've changed inflation regime, uh, you probably wouldn't expect there to be a significant amount of long-term inflation. Um, but you know, have we changed inflation regime? Well, I'll tell you what, a 10% state, you know, 10% in savings being pushed into the economy may have a significant lasting impact that we simply haven't experienced before.
1: Yeah. Okay. So broadly speaking, then you share sort of Yellen's um optimism that there's going to be a strong economic recovery as a result of this stimulus package.
0: I think I think there will be um, I think there will be a strong economic recovery. But it all depends on also the economy's reopening and the efficacy of the uh, vaccines. But you know, early days is showing us. If you look at the kind of Israel, you look at the impact of just having you know the first jab of, of the of the two jabs that are being distributed by Pfizer. The, the early days are showing us that actually. Um, economies look like they can reopen and look like they can recover and actually the spread of the virus once you've had the first jab uh, is actually pretty positive so i would at this moment in time be positive on on the overall economy although i would reserve the right to change my mind if we see the you know the rise of these new variants uh, variants that are immune to um, the, um, the 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 vaccine which is a possibility and I, I think we have to factor that in
1: yeah okay so if we try and sort of distill that we've sort of set the context we i guess we've gone around the different asset classes we haven't touched on commodities but we've we've spoken about bonds we've spoken about equities like if we try and distill all of that and kind of sum up elgin's asset allocation at the moment kind of how you're positioning for the current market environment is is there a way you can distill that for for our listeners
0: yeah so positive on equities overall Within equities, positive on technology, but in a diversified way. Also, we like reopening mm-hmm. trades. So th- these are markets that will do well if the economy reopens. So things like railways, uh, autos, uh, value. You see European value stocks. Yeah. Uh, negative overall on um, fixed income, and in particular on credits. So corporate bonds uh and then negative overall on uk property um within 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 our portfolios great all
1: right well that's a perfect juncture then to move on to um multi-asset funds we've sort of alluded to them you're your head of retail multi-asset funds at elgin i want to speak about them explicitly and just talk about the various benefits and what's kind of going on in that space at the moment so i read and it was according to Morningstar data that assets in multi-asset funds and ETFs reached four trillion dollars in 2020. So that was up from roughly one trillion wow. in 2008. Wow. So that's that's big growth. I mean, why have multi-asset funds, in your opinion, flourished so prolifically post the financial crisis?
0: I think that there's a few things actually. Um, I think the first thing you can't get away with is performance. So multi-asset mm-hmm. funds have pretty much had the perfect environment since 2008 where you've seen equities go up Mm -hmm. you've seen the longest bull market in history and equities the longest positive market in history Uh, but you've also seen bonds do extremely well as well so almost you know the two main asset classes that multi-asset firm will invest in have posted pretty stellar returns you know you could have invested pretty much anything in 2009 and you would have had a return of at least at least 50% and that's looking at our entire universe uh, and actually for US equities it would be something like 300%. So you know w- if you have that perfect environment for equities and bonds it's likely the multi asset funds will do well and we know that investors tend to flock to um kind of looking at historical performance uh, overall, this behavioural bias that we see from investors. That's the first thing. The second thing is is, is regulation. Regulation has pushed, I think, advisors mm-hmm. to outsource their investment capability to those that are regulated and have expertise in managing assets. And you know, to be frank, the universe has got more complex, right? If you look at the, the size of the universe nowadays, it's not just you know UK equities, uh, global equities, and gilts. Now we have hundreds and hundreds of asset classes to invest in. The available universe has expanded significantly. And then linked to that, I think some advisors in particular have just said, look, kind of the regulators pushing us this way, but actually we don't have the investment expertise to do this. So therefore, you know, we're going to outsource that investment expertise and focus on areas mm. that we think we do have expertise in. And this is things like uh, assessing whether you should be in a pension or an ISA, assessing your, you know, your tax liability and the best way to invest to reduce your tax liability and thinking about, you know, lifetime planning. And I think that that is the skill set of the advisor and the advisor yeah that's an interesting that. point because and i guess this sort of built-in asset allocation and the sort of the
1: built-in expertise and fund management expertise that you get with a multi-asset fund allow the ifa to do what they do best and then yeah. the uh, multi-asset fund is the solution rather than a product i suppose if we can characterize it like that for the end client uh, and i i use that that term because i've heard it yes kind of banded about uh, by by various providers and i wanted to get your your thoughts on that like do you do lgim do, do you personally see multi-asset funds as more of a holistic solution for the end investor rather than just a product
0: yeah i do uh, i think that a key element of a multi-asset fund is effectively a solution in a fund wrapper and um, so the advisor when they do their the planning um, of uh, with their clients can take some comfort uh, particularly if a multi-asset fund is targeting a level of risk if it's targeting a level of risk then the advisor then can say this is the risk it's targeting so therefore this is the ex- it's expected return and over you know, 5, 10, 15 20 years and then can do some serious planning cash flow planning with their clients. So actually, the multi-asset fund now is providing that solution because you know, pretty much it's going to stay within that risk profile, the expected return, you can have more certainty around that. Yeah, okay. And is
1: it the built-in sort of expertise that allow providers to to justify their fees? And I'm certainly not approaching it as, you know, they need a justification, but obviously, to, to price a product at, at any yeah. level, you're, you're going to need to be able to justify the, the expense to the end investor. So is, is that key to it, that built-in expertise?
0: Yes, I think so. But let's be honest, I think the asset management industry has charged too much for multi-asset products in the past. And this is why you've seen multi-asset products mm-hmm. the whole come down in price consistently since I started in the industry in 2003. And I think you know that trend is likely to continue um, as asset managers start to consolidate, as the growth of index funds continues. I think you're going to continue to see this pressure on pricing. And that's definitely the feeling we're getting from clients when we speak to them. So yes, I think the fee of outsourcing is justified. But I do think over time, as you get more scale, I mean, you pointed out here, right? The multi-asset fund industry has gone from one trillion to four trillion. So clearly, if you go from one trillion to four trillion, the amount of scale you've got of that fourfold increase means that your profitability has gone up significantly. And actually, you can reduce your your cost. Mm. So I think you are see you are seeing that, uh, and I think I think that is that is justified. And the last one I just mentioned on this. The regulator is all over this, right? The regulator has encouraged managers mm-hmm. to reduce their fees. You think about the value for money studies from the FCA. They encourage all managers now for all their strategies to um, say whether the strategy is value for money. So actually, there is increased scrutiny from the regulator now also on on fees.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're seeing sort of just transparency on fees and costs to the end investor across the board, and obviously that's something that that we're all keen to see. But um, if we if we turn our minds yeah. to sort of measuring performance, then um, this is sort of a, an insight taken from really from from nowhere other than just sort of me looking at the multi asset funds uh, without actually yeah. any exposure to them myself. But it seems difficult to sort of accurately, I guess, benchmark the funds because obviously you're cross asset. What's your take on that? Is actually that a difficult thing to do, or or have I kind of got that have I got that wrong?
0: I think it is very difficult to benchmark multi asset funds. Uh, And Mm. what tends to happen is then that they get benchmarks against each other, and advisors will look at you know okay, I've invested in this one, I've invested in fund A instead of fund B. You know how has it performed over time? Um, and they, they use the actual universe or peer groups as a benchmark instead of an official benchmark. And I think overall, that's probably the right thing to do and um, to look at um, a group of peers and say, actually, how's, how have my strategy done relative to that group? Um, because actually, you're right. that There is no there isn't really a proper benchmark for looking at different multi asset funds. Uh, the one thing that you are seeing, and, and I mentioned this before, is that you are seeing and you continue to see the volatility managed sector. So these are funds, multi-asset funds that sit within volatility profiles. So what you can do is say mm. this fund sits in this volatility profile, have all the managers in that volatility profile or that risk profile done, and then look at, you know, and, and look to see, you know, who's been the winners and who's been the losers within. That, all, that overall risk profile, but as you know, past performance is no guide for the for the future either. Um, so I, I think looking at purely past performance is um, ends up being pretty naive.
1: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I, I guess we, we've done a we've done a decent job there of covering multi assets more multi asset funds and products more broadly. But I want to finish the main body of the interview by discussing L multi asset fund range. So you mentioned four pillars uh, and and ways in which Elgym aim to benefit the the investor and reduce costs on their side and ultimately deliver deliver a good product. Um, I wanted to focus on cost effective construction first. How how do you attempt to limit the costs of building each of your portfolios?
0: So typically we invest in index building blocks. So even for our multi-manager proposition where we invest typically in external strategies, there's a limit to the amount of external strategies we'll invest in, and we'll use index building blocks to, to, to effectively bring down the overall cost. LGM, as you probably know, are the leader, UK's leader in index products. So it means that I've got a wealth of mm. capability to tap into in order to build my multi-asset funds using index and passive strategies. And that brings down the overall the, the, the overall cost. And that's something that really attracted me to LG in the first place in 2013, knowing that the way the market is moving, it's moving towards more cost-effective strategies. So therefore, why not go to a house which has those cost-effective building blocks.
1: Yeah, okay, interesting. You've got sort of a perfect and very diverse pool of building yeah. blocks to pick from, whereas a lot of other houses don't yeah. have that. Um,
0: interesting. Exactly, a lot of the houses have to, have to buy it buy. Yeah. us.
1: Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and just one of the other sort of pillars that stuck out to me was uh, a long-term perspective. So, well, you describe it as key to to the sort of investment philosophy, but well, long-term, I guess, is subjective to, to the investor. Yeah. but. Typically, kind of what time horizon are we talking about to make sure that that impacts uh, positively on on the cost?
0: Okay, so um, any asset allocation view in the multi-index funds is typically at least a year, but can last for Mm -hmm. five years. So the views are basically one to five year views. They take medium term views and try and look through short term noise. And uh, which means that we're willing to be patient. There may be some p- positions that don't work out for us immediately. That we're willing to be patient on, wait for this outperform. So I think that's what really distinguishes some of the strategies um, that we run in the retail market versus um, other competitors out there. Is that we are willing to take that long term approach and wait for those positions to really pay off. Okay,
1: but within that. Are you retaining some sort of flexibility and sort of ability to be tactical and allocate tactically, or are you quite sort of rigid in terms of sticking to that at least one year timeframe?
0: Well, there are some times where we've had well, one to five year time horizons and they paid off in a few months, right? So so, so then if, 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 if it pays off in a few yeah. months, then you don't keep the position, right? You, you, you will sell it. Um the one mm. thing I would say is the more volatile the market becomes, the shorter that window becomes. you know. So we'll be yeah. bunched towards the one year rather than the five years. Uh, but I'm a true believer that taking a medium-term view for retail yeah. clients is the right way to invest their money. And it's the way that I invest my own money as well. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree.
1: Okay, well, as as part of that, range, uh, just one sort of uh, tranche or or, or one uh, stream of funds that stuck out to me as particularly interesting was the multi-index investment funds. So I think there were seven of them I counted, uh, and each aims to, to meet a range of client needs, so whether that's growth or income, for example, by offering different levels of equity exposure. Um, can you describe the objective of these sorts of products for our listeners, particularly because I'm assuming a lot of the listeners won't have come across them?
0: yeah i mean to be honest, they probably have come across them they're, they're on all the platforms um but yeah yes so, so the the l and g multi index funds uh they range from um three uh there's five growth funds three income funds um there are uh three now esg variants which i think is really interesting as the market is becoming more mm. responsible in terms of investing but also then there's There's three for European clients. So there's there's, there's, there's a significant range of strategies there. They range from low risk to high risk. So you can pick the flavor that you want in terms of overall risk and equity exposure. So the the most risky one is multi-index seven, where that that holds pretty much close Mm -hmm. to 100% equities. And the least risky one is multi-index three, which is essentially about 20% equities so you've got your you know, you've got your your, your flate, and then obviously four between four and six are kind of sit between that uh, you know and what we're trying to do is we're trying to remain inside certain risk parameters so advisors can take comfort and investors can take comfort that um, that the spots won't change on the leopard so to speak uh, we're dynamic in terms mm-hmm. of asset allocation for taking those medium term one to five year views relative to others in the market we are diversified so we spread our risk over lots and lots of different asset classes and this goes back to this heritage we have at elgin meaning we've got lots and lots of different asset classes to choose from because we've got you know the biggest uk uk based asset manager it means that we've got a wealth of a wealth of scale and then and then we try to be cost effective and i'll just repeat it's again The only thing you are guaranteed in fund management is that costs will detract from returns year after year after year. So it's so important you manage them and you manage them effectively. And that is a mantra that I've said many a time and I'll continue to say in the future.
1: Yeah, yeah. They just struck me as interesting because it's quite a a good sort of... Well, firstly, there's a diverse range of products to suit your risk appetite, which is great. But actually, if, if I flip it around and sort of... Try and think about it from your perspective. Is that a difficult range to manage and maintain? I mean, because as you say, you've got seven funds across to, to cater toward several different types of risk exposure and risk appetite. Is is that a difficult range of funds to manage or not?
0: Uh, well, fund management isn't easy, right? Um, you know, the, the idea <laughs> of fund management and trying to stay ahead of the competition and the competition, you know are all very smart people, um, it's actually very difficult, right? It's difficult. And that's why we invest in having a really strong investment team, a, a really strong investment capability. Um, and that's why, you know, I've been now in the in the industry or in the market, in the investment markets, uh, not purely for management, but, you know, mm-hmm. you're talking, what? what's that kind of um, 18 years now? So, you know, that comes with that that comes with with experience of going through, you know, seeing the end of the tech, uh, the tech bubble bursting. You know, I've been through the global financial crisis, been through this bear market now. So, you know, having that experience is really vital in navigating the volatile markets that come about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of experience in the team as well, isn't there? I think I read multi-asset sort of got i think a a figure that was pulled out was over 35 years worth of experience managing managing funds so um so yeah i mean it's all there in the team okay well i want to finish the main body of the interview there we are left with our quick fire question round so this is a generic list of questions that i send to all guests Uh, it's just a light-hearted way to end the episode uh, and feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word so first question What is the top mistake investors make? To be too short-term. Yeah, definitely heard that one before. Okay, question two. Where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example?
0: Bloomberg, the early morning read by Deutsche is really really interesting. Uh, The uh, Bank Hmm. of America Merrill Lynch, Rick Report is really interesting. And ultimately, I've got a team working with me of 35 people. Uh, So they are the main resource that I use and they're absolutely brilliant.
1: Great. Uh, Question three, what is the most memorable moment from your career today?
0: I think it's been part of a great team and culture and actually a business. LGM has been a real supporter of an inclusive culture and have been a leader in the industry at driving great diversity and inclusion. Good. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's certainly come through in this interview. Question four, then, a top tip for your
0: younger self. The importance of relationships. While it's important to work hard, actually working hard Mm -hmm. in your relationships is of equal importance.
1: Yeah, okay. And question five. Uh, So this is sort of the opto question. We we aim to speak to the companies, the individuals outperforming uh, traditional or typical benchmark returns, I suppose. Um, So we always ask every guest, what is an investor's best source of alpha
0: the best source of outperformance the best source of alpha to me is to ensure costs don't get out of control because as i've stressed in this interview a number of times they're the only thing that i guarantee to detract from returns year after year after year perfect
1: all right well uh, that just leaves me to say thank you very much justin it's uh, been great to have you on the podcast thank you very much thanks for listening everyone just a quick note before we sign off, if you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top 7 stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends, and in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.